Let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 is where we're at this morning. Hebrews 13. We're going to spend a little time uh, at the end, just um, spending some time in prayer together as we take communion uh, with one another. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, James and I uh, are still kind of reeling on um, the things that folks wrote down on those cards a few weeks ago, those holy ambitions that we talked about uh, last week. Our hearts are still filled and, and in some ways wanting to return back to those particular things and ensuring that those, those desires, those holy ambitions get traction uh, within the church itself. And so... Uh, and the coming weeks will bring more attention to those things that you wrote down. But for this morning, we're, we're, we're beginning to close out this particular series. We've gone through the different values uh, of our church. First being vulnerable communion. We want to be a people who say, God, we, we want to be vulnerable before you. You have sway over us and we want to we make a priority of communing with you. But then also the other value that we hold on to is intentional community, that it takes intention to gather together as God's people. Um, when it comes down to it, life is busy and life is hard and it's easier not to gather. Uh, but what God calls us to is to gather. And as we gather, he is so good to make his presence known among us. Um, so intentional community, but now we're looking at sacrificial mission, the final value of our church. And of course, we're considering faith for mission. So Hebrews chapter 13, I'm reading verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16. God's word states, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, there's some action to be taken. Because Jesus did what he did in going outside the gate, now church, let us go to him, outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray and we'll dive right into it. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Lord, your, your word lasts forever. It endures through all the, the blows that our culture might bring upon it. It stands. It stands because it's your word. Thank you that you promised to empower your word, that as we look into your word, there's something of you to be encountered. Spirit of God, we ask your help even right now that you would take the truths. Uh, even if my words are confusing, God, I, I pray that you would take specific 
truths, highlight them in our hearts and in our minds. May your word, as you promise, that it would not return void. But God, would we counter something of you through your word. So Holy Spirit, come and bless it. Pray that you'd make it clear and make it effective upon our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So throughout the series, uh, we've had kind of this uh, running illustration for biblical faith. Um, remember, it's, it's the illustration of the crocus flower, right? We love the crocus, especially after having all these snowstorms. Suddenly, the crocus flower is all that much more substantial to us. Why? Because the crocus flower is like the first flower to bloom when spring is about to arrive. And so when you see this, the crocus flower springing forth, you know, okay, spring is coming. It's the crocus flower that sets a sign for a reality that is yet to be experienced, but it's coming. Uh, and in the Midwest, when people see the crocus flower, all of a sudden, they start dressing like it's spring, although there might be snowfall upon snowfall, but they live according to the sign of the crocus flower until they eventually experience spring. That's the way it rolls. And that's an illustration of biblical faith, as we've been talking about. Biblical faith considers a reality. And as we'll see here, it's the reality of Jesus who he is, what he's done, what he's promising to do. We see the crocus flower of Jesus, and we begin to live according to the crocus flower, Jesus, until the full reality of who he is and what he's accomplished for us is realized. It gets at the title of, I want that mountain. I want all that Jesus has purchased for me and intends to accomplish through me. Like, I want, I want all of that. I don't want to live this life when death comes knocking at my door. I don't want to have lived this life in such a way that I just live for the here and now, for the worldly stuff, never actually living according to all that Jesus intended to accomplish in me and through me. I want something of eternal, lasting benefit to my life. I want that mountain. I want to see the kingdom of Jesus realized in greater measure in me and through me. And so this is biblical faith. We reason. We reason who Jesus is and what he's done. And thereby we then act. We put movement to the truth that is set before us. We dress like it's springtime, right? Until we experience the fullness of what he's accomplished for us. This is biblical faith. It goes from reason to action to experience. You reason it, you know the truth, you walk according to it, you live according to it, and you eventually experience the goodness of it. So, throughout this series, we've touched on, as I mentioned, the first two values that we have as a church. We've explored the question, how do we grow in faith for communion with God? How do we grow in faith for community with one another? And this morning, we're considering how we grow in faith for mission, for boldness, for courage, the courage that it takes to call unbelievers to Jesus and see something of churches planted locally and Globally, how do we grow in faith for that? 
And the text then this morning follows this, if we could say the anatomy of biblical faith, this process of reason, action, experience. We'll see this in the text. So those are the three points as we consider faith for mission. The first part, point being this, faith for mission reasoned. What's the truth, right? What's the theological basis for active, sacrificial, faith-filled mission? And if you want to just like bring that into the practicality of your life experience, like, okay, with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your family members, how do we, what's the theological basis for active, sacrificial, faith-filled mission? This courageous, bold proclamation of the gospel to those who don't know him. What, what, what should we have in mind? What's the theological basis? What are the truths that inform this radical sacrifice, this prayerful risk? Well, the author of Hebrews puts before us the crocus flower, right? As the fundamental point of our reasoning, what should inform our thinking? Verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So what's the fundamental point of reasoning for active faith-filled mission? It starts with Jesus, right? Very simple, basic, it's Jesus. The promised one, Jesus, has come. The Lamb of God has come. The point is that we now, through Jesus, have a way to God. We now have a solution for the brokenness of this life and the problem, even as was mentioned earlier. We, we have a solution to this problem of death, and it's Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus became the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He was like the Old Testament lamb sacrifices that were eventually taken outside of the gate to be burned. You didn't want the leftovers from the sacrifices just sitting there, rotting away, so they would be taken outside of the gate and burned. Anything that was taken outside of the gate didn't belong. It was the place of shame. It was the place of Rejection. It's the stuff that you don't want that would get thrown outside of the city gate. That's why trash was discarded outside of the city gate. Corpses and the diseased were taken outside the gate. And this is the path that Jesus took for us. The perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He went outside the gate. Literally, he walked the path of shame, of rejection, of Total abandonment. He walked the Calvary Road to Mount Golgotha to suffer and ultimately die in utter shame. Naked and beaten, cursed and mocked, condemned and crushed. Jesus went outside the gate. Now, any kind of small version of shame that we experience in this life is really nothing compared. And, and I know we've experienced deep-seated wounds of shame in our own life, but nothing quite gets to this shame that Jesus endured. Or as chapter 12 states, he despised it. He received it, he went through it, but he despised it. He would not be 
shamed. He wrestled through it, in other words. He went outside the gate to suffer this shame, this incredible shame. You think of the creator God coming into his creation and robing himself in human flesh and willingly laying down his life to suffer ultimate rejection. Hanging naked before a crowd of people. Being pierced through with nails. His body being torn and ripped. Willingly suffering all of that, the mockery, the cursing. He suffered all of that for you and for me. Do you see what the purpose of his suffering was? It states, he suffered, he went outside the gate. He suffered this shame. He endured this suffering. Why? In order to sanctify the people. Sanctify simply means to set apart, to make distinct. Like the world is in this cookie-cutter format. They think certain ways and live certain ways. And what Jesus did is he died. He endured this shame outside the gate. He be, became one who is rejected, who did not belong, in order to sanctify us, to set us apart out of the mold of the world, to set us apart unto himself unto his likeness. Again, sanctify means to set apart, to make distinct, peculiar, unique, different. This is what Jesus, he did all of, he suffered that way so that you would be made like him. So that you wouldn't fit into the mold of this world. I was reminded, um, even this past week of the story in Luke 7, where this prostitute comes to Jesus. You guys probably know the story, right? She, she has lived her life selling her body. And she carries now this alabaster flask of ointment, which would have been the money that she would have earned selling her body. The ointment represents really her past, her brokenness, the abuse that she's suffered. And she takes that ointment, and what does she do? She pours it out on Jesus' feet, right? What is all of this to represent? It is to recognize that she has a broken past that now has resulted in praise. From the past of brokenness now to this glorious praise poured out at Jesus' feet. And some would say that even as Jesus later would be taken to the cross, that aroma still would have been in the air as a result of this sacrifice of praise. But this is the reality of what Jesus does for us. He has gone outside the gate. He's suffered so that our broken past might result in glorious praise. He has sanctified us. He takes us from a place of brokenness, of sin, and he brings hope and healing and holiness to our lives. This is what Jesus does for us. 
He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. Now, if we'd consider the earlier verses in chapter 13, this gives some practicality to how he sets us apart, how he sanctifies us. The peculiarity of Christians in chapter 13, verse 1, is that we show lavish love to the needy. That's how you should be different from this world. That's how you should be like Jesus, showing lavish love to the needy. Or chapter 13, verse 4, they give themselves to sexual purity. God thinks sex is a big deal. He thinks gender is a big deal. He thinks sex is a big deal. And he has confines for all of it so that it might be rightly used within the context of marriage. Christians are different from the world, and we are going to, we're going to face it, folks. We are going to face it. We're going to face it in our culture. Have you, have you watched the news? Have you watched what's taking place? There is going to be a sexual ethic that is pushed in the name of justice. And the way in which Jesus makes us different is to say, you need to be individuals who are lavish in your love to the needy, but who give yourselves to sexual purity. Don't be like the world. Sex is to be reserved for the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's God's good, as Genesis would say, his good design. And if you're looking for another kind of attribute of how Christians are to be sanctified, set apart, peculiar, different from the world, well, chapter 13, verse 5 says that we are to be uniquely content, <laughs> not lovers of money, right? Not living for the buck, the American dream, for the next big thing. No, we, we live, as we'll see in a little bit, we live for a city that is yet to come. We don't give ourselves to the earthly stuff, right? That's an investment that will not ultimately last. We live for a city that is yet to come. There is a heavenly investment that we live our lives for. And because of who Jesus is for us, we know that he is going to provide for us, tend to us, ensure that we have what we need, even for the sake that we would live for the city that is yet to come. These, whether it's lavish love to the needy, sexual purity, or just being uniquely content. These are strange things when it comes to the world that we live in. We are not to fit into the mold of the world. Jesus has set us apart to himself. And, and it's so important. Note, if you go back to verse 5, Jesus promises to be with us. In other words, this is going to be a hard road for us. If you're going to be unique in these particular ways, <laughs> it's going to be a hard journey. And God, Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to be with you through that process. Because it's going to be hard. It's going to go against the grain of culture. Now, not only are we set apart to Jesus, to his likeness, but also to his purposes. All right? So his agenda is his directives for us, not our own. 
his desires for us, not our own. His dream, if you will, for us, not our own dream. Um, I was reminded of the story of Solomon this past week. Um, Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, you remember? And Solomon's just, man, God's blessed him like crazy. And so he's, he, he, he's drawing attention from these surrounding nations. And Queen of Sheba's like, I gotta go check this guy out and go and see what's happening uh, with Israel. And so she comes and visits Solomon and she says this profound thing. She says, your God has shown you favor because he loves his people. Think about it for a second. He's shown you favor because he loves his people. In other words, the love and favor that he's shown you is now your responsibility to show to others. You're supposed to take care of God's people, Solomon. And the Queen of Sheba just showing up, saying, whoa, God has favored you because he loves his people. Jesus has favored us, right? He has set us apart to himself, but also to his purposes of being like Solomon, extensions of his favor and his love. So Paul would say it this way, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. We've been shown incredible love through our Savior because we have concluded or reasoned that Christ died for all and he died that those who might live, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is Paul saying? We've been loved to show love to others. We've received Jesus' love to now show Jesus' love to others. Jesus has sanctified his church to himself, to his likeness, but also to his purposes, that we would be extensions of his love to a lost and dying world. This, back to the main point, this is the reasoning from which faith for mission begins. Christ went outside the gate to die in order to sanctify you to himself, to make you one through whom his love and mercy might flow. This is the reasoning we need. This is the lens through which we are to see our lives. This is the fundamental reasoning now of our life that defines everything else. That Jesus went outside the gate for my sake to sanctify me to himself, to his likeness, to his purposes, now to be a channel of his love to others. That's the reasoning that I got to have. That's like the stuff I got to live by. That's how life now becomes defined. Now what I do is defined by that reality. The decisions that I make are defined by that reality. The, the money that I make and how I use money, defined by that reality. All of life now comes defined by that reality. I am not my own. I've been bought with this price. Christ went outside the gate to make me into his likeness and to set me forth into his purposes. This is the reasoning that we must have in mind. But remember, 
the anatomy of biblical faith. That reasoning's got to take action. We've got to do something with what we now know of Jesus. We've seen the crocus flower. We've seen Jesus. Now it's time to put something into action. So secondly, faith for mission enacted. Look at the text, verse 13. By the way, it's really weird with just a few of you here, like, getting all excited. But I can't help it, right? We'll pound away on this, uh, this pulpit, get all excited, because this is, man, this is just stuff burning in me. Uh, so, verse 13. Therefore, because of Jesus, because of what he's done, let us, this is so good, go to him. Let's go to him. Right? And bear the reproach he endured. Man, I, I love what. Where is Jesus at still? Like the, the imagery is that Jesus is still somewhere. And you need to go to him. And where, where is he still at? He's still outside the gate. Right? He's still outside. He's still in this place of shame and rejection. Now, theologically, we know Jesus has ascended. But, but the picture here is that Jesus is outside the gate. And you are to go to him. Right? In some, in some sense, you know, we've, I, 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 I run the risk of creating confusion here. But... God has promised to enthrone himself on the praises of his people, that his presence would be uniquely encountered through praise. When we worship God, God's like, I'm diving into that. I'm going to reveal myself to my people in those moments. When God's people gather together, there's unique ways in which God manifests himself, where he's to be encountered. And even in Hebrews chapter 12, when we go through suffering, there's unique ways that God inhabits our sufferings. He is with us through... So this is, he's bound himself to us again and again. Here's ways in which he says, you can encounter me, you can encounter me, you can encounter me. And one of the ways in which now he says, you can encounter me, is to go outside the gate to where Jesus is. But I don't want to suffer reproach. I want to kind of fit in with this world. I don't want to go against the grain of this world. I don't want those hard conversations. I don't want potential rejection. I don't want to look like an idiot for Jesus. Jesus is saying, I set you apart to me and to my purposes, which means if you want to encounter me, you got to step outside the gate. You got to be willing to suffer reproach with him. He, he is inviting us into those moments. He, he, I mean, we all know those simple, goofy, dumb moments where it's just like, I know I'm supposed to just go talk to my neighbor right now about Jesus. Ooh, I don't know what to say. You know, and, and getting more, uh, it hit me this past week. Um, there was a family across the street who lost um, a son to a, to a tragic death. And to be straight, man, um, yeah, I don't know who, who's even watching online. I don't, I don't know that I care too much. But he, he was running and involved in all kinds of stuff that he shouldn't have been. 
every time I saw him outside, the Lord would just be like, just go say, hey, when are you going to start following me? Just go ask him. When are you just going to give your life to Jesus? Stop running. Again and again. I don't know how faithful God, it was just this, every time I saw this guy, man, it was, the Lord said, and I'd, I just would sit back and just like, Ugh. no, not ready for that conversation. Not willing to suffer that reproach. I don't know how he's going to react. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. Even saying, like, you're not going to encounter me unless you go to me. Where is Jesus? He's in those places of, like, shame and reproach. He's, he's in the space where you might be rejected. <laughs> he's in the space where, you know, you might be maligned for your faith in him, for saying something true of him. He's in that space. He's ready to encounter you there. But you got to go to him. You got to put faith into action in order to encounter Jesus. Yeah, you may suffer reproach, but he'll be with you. He'll be with you. It's like Stephen. Ah, this is just coming to mind. It's like Stephen. He's sharing Christ with others, and what happens to him? He's stoned. But in this moment of suffering reproach, there Saul, right, who becomes Paul, who's eventually radically saved, he's holding the coats of those who are lobbing these, these rocks at Stephen. Stephen is dying by way of being stoned. And Stephen has an encounter. He, he has a vision of Jesus, high and exalted and, and lifted up, right? It's amazing. Like, the, the whole view is that Jesus is standing over this moment of reproach as the one who suffered ultimate reproach, but in his reproach, he's now exalted to the right hand of God. <laughs> he's in the moment of reproach. He's outside the gate, encountering Stephen as he's losing his life for the sake of the gospel. It's just incredible. You want to encounter Jesus? Go tell people about Jesus. Right? I don't know where I'm at in my notes. Well, let's go to the next point. We are not only to go to Jesus outside of the gate, take these moments where we may be rejected and say, yep, we're entering those moments because Jesus is there and we get to encounter him and he's going to be helping us in the moment. But we're also supposed to go through him. This is, this is a strange way of saying it. But faith goes through Jesus. Faith, the action of faith, goes to him in verse 13, but also through him in verse 15. Do you see it? Go to him, and then it's, we are going through him. Through him, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Going outside of the camp or putting ourselves in potential situations to experience rejection for Jesus' sake is to be done through him. We go to him through him. That is, we don't enter the mission. We don't go to our neighbors. We don't go to our co-workers 
in our own fleshly strength and wisdom and empowerment. We don't go to them in just, okay, well, I need to have all the right words together, and so I'm trusting my self-sufficiency to make this thing kind of happen and go right. It's to say that we go to him outside the gate, but through him, independence upon him. The activity of mission, in other words, must be empowered through Christ. Isn't this the example of Acts? Acts chapter 1, the New Testament church, is about to be born, right, in the book of Acts. It's about to be unleashed. Her mission is about to go from Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? Then pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get ready to go on mission. No. <laughs> it's not do this in your own strength. Go to your neighbor in your own strength. Go to your coworker in your own strength. It's not about your strength. You got nothing when it comes to this mission. The mission is to be done as it's empowered through Christ. So Jesus will say to the church in Acts 1, wait. Wait a second, I thought we were supposed to go. <laughs> he says, no, wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is where I just have to, like, dive in with Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones because he had a deep desire to see the people of God consciously encounter the Holy Spirit who would then empower mission. He states it this way. He says, to me, the most urgent question of the hour is the need of this power of witness, the need of this power in our lives. The early church turned the world upside down as the result of this baptism, and without it, we shall avail nothing. So it is important for the church as a whole and for the individual Christian. He goes on to say, you must not try to argue it away or try to explain it away by saying that those times have changed. He says, no, the teaching of the New Testament is that the promise is for you and your children and as many as are afar off. What is it about today which makes it exceptional? There is nothing. God is the same. The power of the Spirit is the same. Our needs are the same. Put all things together. Should we seek this filling, this baptism of the Spirit? Of course you should, he says. And what is the baptism of the Spirit? Just I know it's a fuzzy term. Uh, we could also refer to it as the filling of the Spirit. It's a conscious and at times a profound encounter with the Spirit of God that both assures us of the Father's love, but empowers us for Christ's mission. The church used to be known for its waiting on Christ. It used to be known, even uh, as I've studied through revival, tarrying meetings. We're going to wait on God. Just like... The church in Acts waited on the Lord. They would wait on him. They would give themselves to prayer in order to go after God, to wait on God, to come, to direct, to empower their mission. So that what is done is not done in the flesh. 
but it's done through the empowerment of Christ's spirit. It's done through Christ. Now, are you putting the pieces together? We are to go to him. He's out there in the moment of reproach, but we need to go through him. We need his empowerment to be about this work. But now, what was the outworking of this baptism or this filling of the Spirit in the book of Acts? What what happened when, when the Spirit came upon God's people, when they were empowered for this mission? They became an incredibly worshipful people. They gladly, they continually confessed Christ. And of course, they were incredibly loving, sharing with one another so that no one in the congregation, no one in the church had a need. They were needless. Why? Because they were loving one another. They, they were living in what Christ had sanctified them to, set them apart to this, this work of showing incredible, lavish love to those in need. This was all worship. It just wasn't, oh, Christian obligation. I, got, I guess we kind of have to do this thing. I gotta, we, we just kind of have to check it off our list because that's where God you know, kind of wants us to live. No, it was all empowered. It was all the outworking of this encounter with the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit was producing this worshipful people. And even then, when their worship ended in imprisonment, in reproach, what was the church always found doing? What's Paul and Barnabas doing? They're, they're singing. They're still worshiping. It's like nothing could shut them up. Nothing could hinder their, they were just going to worship and worship and worship and worship. Reproach would come. They'd just keep on worshiping. And that worship, it, it's, setting, it's setting our hearts before the Lord, right? It's just, okay, we're, we're going to draw near to God once again. He's going to draw near to us, and he's going to continue to empower whatever he intends to empower so that it's not done in the flesh. It doesn't feel like just added busyness to an already busy life. There's something unique about it. The Spirit has come and He's empowered hearts to be about the work of this mission. It has resulted in these, these lives of worship. Look at verse 15. It's exactly what the text gets at. That as we're sanctified, as we're set apart, as we go to Him, through Him, what is it going to result in but the fruit of our lips that confess His name and lives that do not neglect to do good? It's going to result in these acts of worship. Here's, here's kind of the overall point. Worship is the goal and the fuel for Spirit-empowered mission. If you want to be effective in stepping outside the gate and going to your neighbor or your coworker. And being effective doesn't mean that they're going to fall on their face and trust Jesus. That you're just effective enduring even the reproach that might come. Right? What is the goal and the fuel for that spirit-empowered mission? John Piper says it this way. He says mission exists because worship doesn't. Right? Think you got to think, worship, or mission exists because your neighbor's not worshiping God. God wants the worship of your neighbor and your coworker. He wants to encounter them. So mission 
your responsibility to go outside the gate exists because worship doesn't. He says worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, he says, but worship abides forever. He says worship is the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Your neighbor knows. <laughs> Your neighbor knows. He knows if you don't really believe what you're saying. He knows if you're just doing it by cold religious obligation. Well, I'm supposed to do this, so hey, can I just go through the ABCs of the gospel with you? Now, when your heart has been captivated by God, man, you, you, you can rightly commend what you are authentically cherishing. Piper says, missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, <laughs> who cannot say from their own heart, I rejoice in the Lord, I will be glad and exalt in thee, I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Worship fuels mission. You see, mission exists for the sake of worship. Worship is the goal. We tell others of Jesus to see them worship Jesus, to see them orient their life to Jesus, to the one whom they were ultimately created for, but worship is also the fuel of missions. Worship keeps us postured before God. It keeps us hungry for God, waiting on God, in order that he remains central and exalted in our thinking and in our affections, and therefore in my actions to do mission. He can be seen as that which is truly cherished. I actually have something to offer. It's why worship here in Hebrews verse 15 is referred to, then in 16, as the fruit of the lips. If you guys remember, if well, you guys know, fruit is different from the root. Fruit is different from the root. Right? The fruit of our lips doesn't begin with our lips. It begins with something deeper, a deeper life source, a deeper stirring within us. You just don't go speaking of Jesus to others or singing of Jesus before others. It's to usher from a deeper place of encounter with God. To, from the touch of his presence, we could say. And that's what worship does. Drawing near to God so that our hearts would be aligned with him, so that from the hearts would be the fruit of our lips. Our worship would go from our heart to our lips. That mission then would be driven by worship. It is the fruit of our, our lips. Worship is the goal. It is the fuel of spirit-empowered mission. So, all right, summary, like, that was a lot, I know. Laid on you. Here's a summary. So based upon the reasoning of faith that Jesus went outside the camp as the perfect sacrifice for sins, based upon that reasoning, the reality of who Jesus, what he's done for us, based upon that reasoning, the action of our faith 
is that we must go to him and through him with dependence upon the Spirit's power and with worship as the fuel and goal of mission. That's loaded. Maybe we'll throw that in the comments for all you folks online, because I know you didn't probably catch it all. But these are massive concepts. Should I do it one more time? <laughs> the reasoning of faith, that Jesus went outside the camp as the perfect sacrifice for sins, now becomes the action, the basis of our action, is that we must now go to him and through him with dependence upon the Spirit's power and with worship as the fuel and goal of mission. Finally, third, and I know I'm going long, but this is quick. Remember the anatomy of biblical faith. Reason, action, experience. Reason, action, experience. What is the experience in verse 16? How, what does this all culminate in? Okay, I've reasoned who Jesus is, what he's done for me. Okay, we're putting this thing into action. We're going to him, through him, dependence upon the Spirit's power, you know, worship as the fuel and goal of it all, right? So what's the, what's the outcome of all this? Verse 16. For this is pleasing to God. <laughs> Isn't that enough? And then God's pleased. He really likes you. And, 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 and like he's showing that pleasure to you. Like you do all of this, you go to Jesus, you suffer this reproach, but you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you, you go after God through worship, you know, the fuel and gold mission. And God's like, I really, I really love it. You know, you know when your kid does something that is just like, oh, wow, that was amazing. So Judson's upstairs. All right. So this past week we did this crazy thing. We ran down to Florida. Uh, and we participated in a worship gathering there. Um, and one particular night, it was just a beautiful night of encounter with God. Uh, there's just no other way to say it. Um, but I look over, and there is Judson, just hands in the air and singing out. Now, we've, we've tried, okay, guys, let's get engaged, let's sing songs when we go to church, you know, let's be in, involved and, and active and, and just sit there and not sure what to do, maybe mumbling a few, but in this moment, you know, that was just like, oh, as a father, yes! Like, man, he's, he's engaged! And he's like totally like not aware of anyone else around him because his hands are up, he doesn't care, you know? Wonderful moment for a dad. The pleasure! You just want to go and pick them up and yes, celebrate what's happening in the moment. Oh, yeah, this is good. That's God with us. When we've gone to Jesus, said, yeah, I'm going I'm to suffer the backlash of speaking lovingly but clear about who Jesus is for those who need him. And when I suffer, oh, I can know that the experience of this act of faith is going to be this wave of the Father's pleasure. That's just enough. Have you, for, for, yeah, I always want to go down. Okay, I stay back. Uh, there, are, there are times uh, in counseling where I've, I've asked folks who are just struggling, sometimes it's depression, sometimes it's just racing thoughts of negativity and those kind of things. Um, but I've just, 
I've asked them, what, what is the Father saying to you right now? What is he saying about you? Like, you're hearing all this stuff, but what is, what is the Father saying? <clears throat> and they're like, I, I can't, I, I, I can't even pick it up. There's just, it's like all that other stuff is just so near. And so we begin renouncing those thoughts that are clouding the mind. This is not true. You are not unworthy. You are not a failure. You're not a monster, right? We just shut down those lies. Shut them down, shut them down. Bring those things captive to Christ. And then we sit back and say, okay, now what does the Father think of you? Oh, and, and, and it comes. I'm his child. What else? Oh, he really loves me. Yes, yes. What else? He's for me. <laughs> He's pleased with me, right? And then you begin watching just the darkness kind of peel away. And them living in the light, in the pleasure of their father. It's something of that kind of experience as well when God's people are like, hey, this might hurt. <laughs> this might... Uh, like stick at my personal sense of dignity, fitting in with culture or whatever. I'm going to go outside the gate, for Christ's sake, to engage with my neighbor, potentially suffer whatever's there, but on the other end of it, I can know something of this fatherly pleasure. He loves us, and he loves when we go outside the gate for his sake. Because he not only loves you and is pleased with you, but he loves those. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He has shown you love so that you would show love to others. And as you show love, his love to others, he is deeply and wonderfully pleased. So here's what we're going to do. This is kind of tough, small crew. But we're going to participate in the Lord's table as the conclusion to this. Um, for those of you at home, go ahead and grab uh, those particular elements. But what we're going to do is grab the elements, take them to our seats. And yeah, they're the wafer foamy things, which taste really weird, so don't let it surprise you. It's, it's kind of gross. Um, but nonetheless, what it represents and what it points us to is ultimately glorious. Um, so keep that in mind. Don't be distracted by the goofy foamy cracker. Um, but what we're going to do is we take the elements. I, I want to pray along a few lines. First, I don't know about you, uh, but repentance has to play a role here. Um, you know, I just, through this sermon, I just evaluated my own heart and life and was like, all right, the last six months... Last six months, who have I shared Jesus with? Who have I, I, like, intentionally entered into the moment of potential reproach? Um, You know, we opened our our house to three foster kids, and that was an opportunity. Um, But that's, like, almost cheating. (laughs) They come into our space, right? Um, It's going to other space where reproach could be experienced. And so in six months, I, I even personally sit back, and there's been other opportunities, but I just, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of just, like, of not seeing the fruit of mission. I'm tired of just not seeing the broken healed. 
those who are faithless come to faith in Jesus. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it, but it, it exposes a reality in my own heart that I need to repent. Lord, I, I haven't taken the truth of who you are and allowed it to inform my actions, that I actually get to go outside the camp and suffer reproach with Jesus to then encounter your pleasure. I don't think through all that stuff in the moment. Um, so I think repentance needs to be something we just kind of pray through. Um, but then also asking. This is our, as we gather together on Sundays at home, uh, live stream, like, this is an opportunity to ask for the filling of the Spirit. Lord, come and fill us. Like, we're going to wait on you, but we, we want your directives. We want you to show us where you want to take us. We, we, we want your burden. We want to share in your burden for the lost. So fill us. Fill us. Direct us. Give us your compassion. Um, but then the, the third thing and the final thing that I, I, I want um, even to pray into the breaking of the bondage of the enemy. I, I think our minds have just been thinking kind of worldly when it comes to just like what we're here to do as Christians. And so, you know, I, don't, I want to be in Florida again. <laughs> I want to go take it easy. Uh, enjoy some warmth. You know, live for these things that aren't actually a pursuit of the city that is to come. Uh, and so our minds are, have been captivated by the world. And, and at times we're believing lies that the enemy is tossing us and falling into depression rather than being those who are filled with the Spirit and on mission. Um, so I want to see just the Lord break, break the chains of bondage that are upon our minds and hearts. So uh, let's go ahead and come forward. We can grab the elements as you return to your seats. Um, I just want to pray through these three points. And we'll conclude. So you got to peel the top layer off, the transparent layer first. All right. So just before we take it, I just want to spend a... Anybody else uh, willing to pray through one of these points? Uh, re repentance, asking for a filling of the Holy Spirit, and breaking the bondage of wrong thoughts. Anybody interested? It, you up for doing that? Here.
Lord, we, we come to you and we acknowledge the fact that um, yeah, so often our, our lives are not just informed with the ultimate truth of what you, Jesus, have done for us in going outside the camp. And, and that truth does not then move us into action to be concerned for our, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members who may not know you. So Lord, we, we just repent. We, we thank you. We thank you that we can just acknowledge, Lord, we, we haven't done well at this. <laughs> that we've, we've been driven by other things, confused with other things, focused on other things. So, Lord, we, we do. We, re, we repent. We ask that you would now come and fill your church. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Come and fill us as we, as we would gather uh, to, to pray and to worship. We pray that you would, you would come and encounter us and just fill us afresh.
again and again. The truth would just not be something that comes in one ear and is lost. And as soon as we kind of roll out the door, the truth would just rain in our hearts. We just can't shake the truth because it's just, it, it's, it's so present in us and in our minds and, and our hearts now are burdened with your burdens. Our hearts are throbbing with love, like the Apostle Paul says, um, because we're compelled by your love. Lord, so we pray that you would, you would fill us, fill us. And now, Jesus, based upon your authority, we come against all the lies that we've been thinking, the lies of comfort that captivate us, the lies of being unworthy, the lies of, of past shame and the things that we've done and haven't done. Uh, God, we, we pray against uh, those lies that would come at us and, and recognize you've gone outside the gate for us to sanctify us, to set even our thoughts apart to you, that they would be informed by you, be informed by who you are, what you've done, and how you've earned for us the pleasure of the Father. So Jesus, we, we ask that your authority, that lies would be silenced in Jesus' name. That truth would reign, that the pleasure of the Father would reign. Lord, I, I even pray against religious thought that would get in the way from truly being abandoned to you. Thoughts that would say, well, I can worship through my comforts. I can worship you through my drink. I can worship you through eating. I can worship you through rest. And how th those particular things get in the way of actually being sanctified to your purposes. We know the enemy loves to use the Bible to get in the way of Christians actually living for you. Jesus, that was your temptations with Satan. He came at you with scripture. So Lord, would, would theology and religious thought not get in the way of your people being truly convicted by your spirit and even then empowered by your spirit to be about this work of seeing others come to you. So we come against those false religious thoughts, those thoughts of confusion that keep us from truly living what you've died to set us free from. And now, Father, we ask for your pleasure. <laughs> ask for your pleasure, that we would know your pleasure. In Jesus' name. Well, let's take the elements remembering Jesus who has gone outside the gate for us. Remembering then that he is the one who empowers us to go to him and do the same. Let's take it together. Take and eat.
Wow. 